On today's episode, we talk about designing and delivering a frontline customer service program. We talk about women in sports business and the importance of coaching. From Engagement, I'm David Malay, and this is Flip the Switch. Before we get started today, quick housekeeping note. In addition to our consulting work where we lead customer experience transformations, we get a lot of emails and notes asking our opinions on different topics. So we started writing a weekly newsletter that includes our thoughts and analysis on different happenings in the world of customer and employee experience. In there, we include a link dump to all the different things that are inspiring our team from books that we're reading, TED Talks we're watching, social media posts that are making us question things. You get the picture. We'd love to have you join our community of subscribers. So if you're interested in getting weekly customer and employee experience insights delivered right to your email inbox, go to www.engagementpartners.com backslash newsletter to sign up. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Flip the Switch, where we sit down with leaders in customer and employee experience to tease out core principles and apply those insights to the world of sports and entertainment. Today's guest is my friend and fellow Chicagoan, Jahan Blake. Side note, um, if we live in Chicago, but we aren't really from Chicago, are we Chicagoans? Someone message me on Twitter. Let me know. Back to Jahan. Anytime I have a conversation with Jahan, I think of new service or coaching ideas. Jahan and I first met when I was with Disney Institute and Jahan was with the Chicago Cubs and we were giving her and her team some support in creating their revamped customer service program. We'll go into more detail on that program in the episode, but before working at the Cubs as the director of fan experiences, she worked at the LA Dodgers as the director of fan hospitality. And her first role and longest tenure with one team in Major League Baseball was with the Boston Red Sox, where her last role was as the manager of fan services and entertainment. Here's one of the reasons why I believe Jahan is so good in the service and coaching space. Repetition. Repetition is one of the unspoken reasons why Disney is so good. It's honestly much easier to deliver great service when you practice every day, no different than actual sports. If you only go out onto the field seven days a year, you're probably not going to be as good as the guy that's been practicing every single day. So the way that we think about it, right? If you've worked a year in the parks and resorts at Disney, you've honestly worked the equivalent of 250 plus game days. When you do that, you see more weird situations. You get better at conflict resolution because you interact with a higher number of upset guests. You understand what new employees need to be successful because you can experiment with different deliveries on pre-shift meetings. You are able to balance your onstage versus offstage personality better because you develop muscle memory as soon as you put that name tag on. You get to learn and understand what motivates frontline employees because you've worked closely with all kinds of employees day in, day out. You can experiment and tweak different systems and processes until you get it right. Because if something isn't up to your standards on Monday, you can just do it differently on Tuesday. That's why I believe the less events you have, the harder it is to deliver great service. But the more important that it is. So there's a, a really interesting paradox there. In my opinion, this repetition is part of what makes Jahan so good. She comes from Major League Baseball, where each team has 81 home games a year, and often they've got other events in their stadiums on dark days. So by nature of the system she comes from, she's had the opportunity to try more experiments, execute more crazy ideas, and see the results firsthand. Of course, that's just part of the reason why Jahan has been so successful. You'll see right away that her curiosity uh, and her, the questions that she asks, her drive and her ability to navigate complex internal structures of decision making has helped her build deep relationships and implement successful campaigns. 
for the last three to four years, she's been running her own consulting and, com- uh, and coaching company, the Jay Blake Group. While most of the episode, Jahan and I talk about her adventures with different MLB teams and customer experience learnings, we inevitably find ourselves talking about employee experience. Because at the core of every great customer experience transformation or customer service program, it's leadership. If leaders can't motivate their employees under a shared vision or purpose, all is lost. And that's where Jahan's real passion is. It's in coaching and motivating and helping others achieve success. At the Jay Blake Group now, Jahan is balancing her consulting work with organizations and coaching women in sports, helping individuals achieve success in an industry that we all know could use some different perspectives at the top. With that said, let's jump into this conversation with my friend, Jahan Blake. Jahan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Uh, I am excited to have you on here as well. Uh, We've had the past, I don't know how many episodes, but we've talked a lot about service. And I think when we come back to having fans in our venue post-COVID, the way that we treat our guests and the way that we welcome them that back is going to be extremely, extremely important. Um, so let's talk a little bit about where kind of your experience lies and where you find the most, most joy um, in terms of talking about service culture. Give us a little background as to kind of your philosophy on service culture and how you approach the topic. Yeah, you know, it it starts way back and it's kind of scary now that it's I keep saying it's way back, but way back in 2002, when I got my first job in baseball and I remember seeing an ad in the paper, no, on TV about this part-time Fenway ambassador job. And the job is going to be to work with fans. So you're going to be the liaison between the fans and the front office. And I thought, wow. I was like, that sounds like so much fun. And I had just recently become a Red Sox fan and had gone to my first baseball game ever. And just, I remember every single thing about that day. It was Red Sox, Yankees. I remember how the ushers spoke to me in the accent. I remember how many hot dogs, Fenway Franks I had. I remember the beer vendors giving me a little bit of, you know what, because I was from New Jersey. Uh, and it was just the experience itself. I remember walking up the stairs and then in the bleachers and then coming out and seeing the field. And I remember the fans who were just so nice to me, even though I was with like five guys from New Jersey. And I, that's when I was sold. That's when I was like, this is, I need, I always love sports, but there's something really special about this place. And then when I saw that ad and they were, you know, they wanted to work on making people like me fans have an amazing time. I knew I'd like found like the right spot that I wanted to be in. That was super important to me. Do do you remember the score of that game? You know what? It's like you've been, and you haven't, it's like you've been to one of my presentations. I always say, I do not remember the score of the game. No, no well, well, I think that's the case. That's the case for so many of us, right? We go to these Uh games and it's not necessarily, we might be going for that first time for the score and we might be going for the, for the performance on the field. But ultimately the things that you remember is more so, you know, the Maya Angelou quote, it's, it's more about how, how that, how the experience made you feel, or those are the things you end up remembering, not the actual Uh stats of the players per se, at least for the majority of us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's exactly how it was. And I, I mean, I talked about that game forever. And then I found myself, I moved, I lived about an hour and a half away and I moved to Boston, um, not for the Red Sox, but to get my master's. And, you know, I would find myself, this is before digital ticketing and all that. So we would line up on the day of the game and get our lawn chairs and me and my roommate would sit out there and like wait for tickets. And honestly, it all had to do with how I was treated for that one, that one game. And that was it. And they won me over. And uh, you hit on a a big thing too, right? Like technology is going to continue to change. And with the, with digital ticketing, completely changing the way that you even wait and get into a game, um, that whole game day experience has been completely changed with technology and it's going to continue to change no matter what happens in the future. But I, I do think the one thing that will stay the same is the expectations of fans on how they want to be treated and how they want to be made to feel. Um, so, so t- give us a little bit more insight as to kind of where your, your philosophy on service culture started with the Red Sox and how that has evolved over the years. Yeah. So that, you know, um, 
I answered that ad and so did 4,000 other people. Uh, They, over the course of, it took three months, a three month interview process for a part-time job. Um, They hired 25 of us, 25 Fenway ambassadors. And I learned so much from my mentors, um, Dr. Steinberg and Sarah McKenna, who was my direct boss. And it was all about the way, how do you take, how do you take care of fans? How do you find a way to say yes? Right. How do you, like you were just saying, like fans have expectations. So how do you learn about them and then meet those expectations, not even meet them, exceed them. Uh, And so we, we were lucky. We, you know, my, my team or, the team I was a part of, we had a lot of liberty to just, sometimes it was, sometimes it was trial and error, right? Like just to go out and connect with those fans. And I was so junior in my career. It was just such a great way to just to, just to learn by experiencing all of this, just Red Sox fans. If you have not been to a Red Sox game, you need to go, but just Red Sox fans are a special breed. I, w- I went for a bachelor party last year, so it might have been a little different uh, experience, <laughs> but uh, no, it was, it was great. Um, so we'll talk about this concept of ambassadors a little bit later. Mm. Um, I know that's something that you've got a lot of experience with, but uh, as you went from the Red Sox to the Dodgers to the Cubs, uh, talk to us a little bit more formally, I guess, about how you approach creating that service culture. Mm, yeah. So three teams, um, and thank you for getting me there. Cause I'll tell you stories all day, but three teams and, you know, all three teams that I worked for, it was under that same umbrella, um, guest experience, fan experience, whatever you want to call it. Right. It was, how do you take all of the groups that make up the fan experience and make sure they all have the same definition of what a best in class service looks like? Right. So at all three teams, that was the challenge. I, I, you know, over here we have our ushers and ticket takers and they believe this is the way, the one way to do it. And this, everybody needs to do it this way. Right. Well, then you have food and beverage who has totally different responsibilities and pressure. The fan is always at the center, but different responsibilities and they have a different definition. So for me, it was, okay, how do we take all these groups? And it's usually about eight or nine different groups yeah, it's a first, the first thing you have to do is the very first thing you have to do. It starts at the top, right? But everybody listening to yeah. this knows that it goes without saying, right? So it's, it starts at the top, but they, they know, they know it in theory. I don't know how much <laughs> they know it in practice, but that's a whole nother conversation. It is. But that's where I found that the most success is when we started at the top. So each team, I actually started at different places. And then there were some resets and I I learned so much and the best success, the best rollout of any programs that we were doing started when the executives, in some cases, the owners were so on board and helped push it down. So they became like my sponsor Mm -hmm. um, and helped push it down. And and that's where I saw the, the best success because then the department heads realized how important this was to the organization and the success of the organization. And so my role would be to work with all those department heads. So whether it's facilities, um, you know, or ticket takers, food and beverage, and trying to understand what their existing culture is, what they think best in class service is. And then this is where I always had the most fun is, okay, I understand what all the different groups think. Okay. I understand what the fans want. I understand. Let's go back to the top. I understand what the the executive team or the C-suite wants. And so it's just identifying what those gaps are and working on strategies to close them with all those different groups. Yeah. Well, I mean, two things there, right? So one, going back to leadership being involved and those being the most successful rollouts. I, I remember uh, when I was with Disney Institute, we did a rollout with the Dallas Mavericks and Mark Cuban literally kicked off the training session. And so that's where for me, sometimes when we're working with clients and they're like, Oh, we can't get this coach to come out and do it. I'm like, you're paying him or her like, get them out there to show that this is important. Because if you don't do that, it it really devalues the efforts that everybody's putting into it, especially on the front line. You know what? And you're right. And you said something like a lot of people say, Oh, we can't get so-and-so to do this. And 
I would always push back and say, oh, what did he or she say when you asked? Well, I haven't asked them because I just don't want to bother them. (laughs) Okay, so we all have to be careful of the stories that we're telling ourselves, right? Because you don't want to put yourself out there. You don't want to ask. You might get a no, but actually be surprised, right? Like I, you know, I've had players who were not very good public speakers, did not want to get out there. But when they learned what the why behind it, they're like, oh yeah, this isn't like a scheme to make money and not a scheme. The scheme is the wrong word to use, but this isn't like a partner, like trying to, you know, woo a partner. This is actually for the people who are out there who are hardworking and keep our fans happy. And they were always happy to do it. That's a great way of putting it and a great tactic for those of you trying to implement your own rollouts right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you also mentioned you had to sit down with all the different partners and get an idea of what their idea of service was. Um, were there any specific strategies that you found helpful or not? Because I, f- I do feel like when you think about the different third parties that are in the space, some of them have really in their mind, really strong guidelines as to how they deliver service, whether that be a concessionaire, whether that be an event staffing group. Um, but ultimately that may be the case, but it's about does their service match up with the Cubs or the Dodgers or the Red Sox and their unique way of delivering service. So were there any specific tactics or strategies that you used to understand how they thought about delivering service and how you kind of bridge that gap? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what, what I found was everybody wanted to, let me, let me start that over. What I found was once it was pushed down from the top, resistance looked a lot different than it did at other clubs that I, I was a part of. So once it came down from the C-suite that this is what we're doing and got everybody on board, it was, it was a little bit easier, Right. So then it became, all right, we all know what this is, the banner that we're marching under. We all know we are heading in this direction. We've had leadership meetings. We're on board. So now it becomes, okay. I see, you know, one team, one department, food and beverage is usually a challenge just because they come from a corporate office that has set standards. Right. But what I found was once I was able to identify the gaps right? Like what was missing and that you weren't, they weren't living up to our standards. They might be doing well in their area, but they weren't living up to the organization's broad standards. You, you start to, it it just, it's almost, it, it just, it's right there in black and white for them to Mm. see. And what I found was some of the tactics I used was I would always check and see behind closed doors, like, huh, so how much longer is their contract? <laughs> are we in a renewal year, right? How, you know, what are the um, KPIs on, um, you know, for this, for annual KPIs for them? What are they hitting them? But, you know, so we had to, I had to get creative in how we got them on board. And at the end of the day, everybody wants to do right by their client, right? And so usually a third party vendor, you know, in the organization, they the want to keep that contract. <laughs> yes. Yes. And some of these contracts are really long. So sometimes it was challenging, but by the most part, they just want to understand, okay, what do you need us to do? Where are we falling short? How can I help? But I, I think to, to, to answer your question, some of the tactics I used was I, I didn't do this, any of this work alone. Right. So there's a lot of collaboration within my organization and that might've been, just legal, just trying to learn a little bit more about the relationships we have with our third-party vendors and how we hold them accountable and how we might want to rewrite the contract if we do it again, right? Because this is something new for us. Yep. Uh, I think that that was one of the biggest um, ways to kind of get the conversation going instead of forcing it down their throat. Here's our new standards and philosophy and here's what we're doing. Get on board. It, it doesn't, that doesn't work. Yeah. You, you almost have to put yourself in the shoes just like you would a fan of like, if you're not couching as to what's in it for them and you're just saying, here's what we, we now expect of you out of nowhere, it's, you know, you're going to be facing an uphill battle. And, okay. and to, to your point of having it written into the contract, I think that's something that people are starting to think about more now. Yes. Um, but I know that was huge for us at Disney and that's, you know, one of the things that we are starting to help clients with is like contractually, how is it written in? Who's paying for the training? Uh Who's, who's 
uh, you know, what are those KPIs? Is it just show rate that you're getting evaluated on? If that's the case, then as long as they throw warm bodies out there, it's good. And and that's not what you want as a brand. But if that's all you wrote into the contract, sorry. Right. And this is what you these are the expectations you have set for me. So I'm doing them. Well, I don't, I, what am I doing wrong? I don't wrong? understand the problem. Yeah, great yeah, point. Like this this great is what point. you told me to do. So I don't, I don't understand. Like, and so I will say the one thing is if somebody's listening and they're taking on this challenge um, on their own in terms of like, okay, this is your responsibility. Mm-hmm. The biggest piece of advice I would give is make sure you don't do that in a bubble, right? So whatever you're thinking about, the ideas that you're having, um, just as much as you can, just socialize them with people just to see where they land and how they're received. When you're doing that, keep in mind, it doesn't mean if someone disagrees with you that it's, it's a no and that idea is over. And the other way too, if someone agrees with you, it doesn't mean you get to, to, to run with that idea either, but it's so good to socialize it because what happens is you start to get context and it helps you build your case as you start to put this, um, let's call it, you know, service culture program together. I think it also helps with buy-in. Like if you just build it by yourself, even if you're guiding a horse to water, even if you're, you know what the end goal is and you're just getting people's input, at least they feel like they were a part of the process and that they had an, they have some ownership stake in it. They put blood, sweat and tears into it. Um, They gave their opinions. So now they've got to go with it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And people know the difference between true collaboration and you're just checking a box and coming to ants, you know, just asking me questions. Right. Right. Um, That's a good point. And people do know the difference and they will call you out. So when you go into these, you know, when you're socializing something and you're doing it, it should always just come from a place of learning and asking a, a lot of questions. Just get super curious why someone thinks it's a good or bad idea. Like just probe and probe and probe because it's it's only going to help you. Well, something that you hit on, right, uh, when we were talking about just having it in, in contracts and making sure that when you're working with these other provider service providers that are representing your brand on game day, that they have to know what is expected of them. Um, and outside of we'll talk about metrics in a little bit. But I mean, part of it is I, I there were a lot of conversations back in my Disney Institute days where we would have calls with teams and, you know, we'd have, what does success look like? And, oh, it's, it's to get my customer service better. Right. And you're like, okay, well, I need some more specifics than that. And if you're just saying, Hey, partner or Hey, frontline staff, our customer service needs to get better. That's way too broad. That doesn't actually mean anything. There aren't specific behaviors defined there. But one of the things you did with the Cubs was kind of around this marquee moments program and kind of defining this ideal state service culture. Can you tell us if you're as comfortable as you are with it, um, give us a little bit of background as to how you created that and what specifically, what were the components that were involved in, in marquee or marquee moments? Yeah. So um, to take a step back and I swear I'll make it short, but to take a step back, we, we got plenty of time. You're all good. <laughs> the storyteller in me, I can't help it. So we love stories here. <laughs> so if you take a step back, when I first uh, was brought on to work at the Cubs, it was to create an ambassador program. Uh, and so what the organization noticed very quickly was, oh, the ambassador program is well received by fans. Like it is, it's exactly what we need. Like John did her job. Uh, the problem is that's only 25 people. So how do we make everybody ambassadors? Right. So wait, now I'm going to ask you to back up more and give us a little bit of insight as to, I think some people listening might think an ambassador is like, you know, the college kid on campus, that's an ambassador for Red Bull handing out Red Bulls. Mm-hmm. I mean, give us a little bit of background as to how you think about ambassadors and then we can go into marquee moments. So, um, so when you think about ambassadors, uh, it's, it looks different everywhere. Uh, for the teams that I've worked for and some teams that I've been talking to, uh, ambassadors are your group of specially trained um, team members, right, who are able to problem solve quickly, who are sometimes answering phones. And let's just talk about the Cubs, for example. Um, and it was modeled right after me, I was an ambassador, modeled after the Red Sox. So, you know, we have year-round part-time employees answering phones, responding to emails. Um, believe it or not, people were still mailing in letters. 
uh, I should check and see if they're still doing that, but people were still writing letters and asking for things uh, and then having a presence on game day and special events, right? So they were free to roam, right? Like they weren't um, an usher or security guard who, you know, rightfully so had to stay in the same spot. Uh, My team can go out and problem solve and connect with fans all over the ballpark um, electronically as well. And so they're, they're problem solvers essentially for the fans. Yes, they are problem solvers and they execute a lot of the special programs that we have uh, call it, um, or we had um, like play ball, right? Like they pick a kid before the game to say play ball. They might execute. Yeah. And they might execute uh, Robin hood. Right. So these are are all things that I, I um, shamelessly stole from my old boss. Um, but I, these are my favorite things to do as an ambassador. So Robin Hood is you go find fans who are in the stands, who are in seat. Maybe they have an obstructed view, but they just wanted to get to the game or they just have bad seats. And there's something about that person or that family that you just connect with and you see them and you upgrade them to better to better seats. That's so cool. Yeah. That's a great concept, especially yeah. if you're not sold out. Right. Like Exactly. And we were sold out a lot, but. What would happen is, is because there was such buy-in organizationally, we were able to reserve some of those seats ahead of time. Even better. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so now, now, now I'm going to take us down a tangent. All right. So play ball, Robin Hood. What were some of your other favorite ones that you had Ooh, some of these ambassadors do? Happy to go down to th- this path. Um, the in-seat visits. The in-seat visits were um, one of my favorites because... What we would find is that everyone would tell us all of their stories about why they love the Cubs or Red Sox or Dodgers, right? They tell us all the reasons why. And then the question would be, can my grandfather throw out the first pitch? It's because of him. And you just hear all these stories that pulled at your heartstrings. And they were were such good stories. And how can you say no to them, right? How can you not respond to them? Like, you have to respond. And so... Uh, what we would do is we would always find a way to say yes. Uh, and so that for us would be, okay, this is a great story. What if we surprised the grandfather, you know, with an in-seat visit and just bring him, you know, we, we have all the things, all the bobbleheads, all the extra things laying around. Why don't we bring him something special and surprise him and don't tell him? And I would say 99% of the time, the fan who emailed us or wrote us that snail mail was just even blown away that we, we responded, Mm. right? Like they never thought in a million years we would say, yes, they just thought no one would ask, but they just took a shot in the dark. So they were just so happy. And so we would just manage all of our in-seat visits, helping people celebrate milestones. Um, We had our... You know, a lot of people came at Wrigley Field and Fenway Park or in Dodger Stadium, too, were all bucket list, right, places. Completely. And so, and so we would have, like, first-timer certificates for fans. And so the ambassadors during the game would would manage things. Um, those, we'd have a, uh, what do you call it, honorary bat boy and bat girl. Man, I'm going back here. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the ambassadors would, sometimes it was sponsor-related, but we were in our prime when we got to randomly pick um, mm. who the honorary bat boy and bat girl were. We took them down to the dugout and literally just sat there. And can, can you imagine? Like as an adult, if I got to sit in the dugout, I, it's just like, oh my God, there's so much going on. And I remember the first one I did being like Kevin Millar came over and talked to the kids I picked. And I was, he, nobody saw it, but I was shaking. So I was like, it's, it's Kevin Millar. I'm going to play it really cool. But like, I got home and I was like, <laughs> can you believe what just happened? Like, it was just, so imagine being a kid and going through this. Oh yeah. Um, it's something, okay. it's a memory that they'll have for a lifetime. Um, yeah, exactly. But, and and that seems to be the whole point of that ambassador program is, is having almost like a SWAT team of people purely dedicated to creating memories and problem solving. Um, not just responsive, but actually proactively creating moments, which I love. And I think that's a big differentiation between a lot of typical guest service teams that you see where they're sitting behind a kiosk answering questions that appears to be different from what you had with this ambassador model. 
Yes, because what I I am very trusting. And so I hire the right people and I give them a framework to work within and set them free. Right. I have lots of touch points with them and I learn and sometimes maybe you need to loosen something or tighten something, but you give them a framework, here are the expectations, like go get them. Like, don't call me and ask if you could give this, you know, grandfather a Ernie Banks limited edition bobblehead. Do you think it's the right thing to do? Right. Are you breaking mm-hmm. any rules? Like, mm-hmm. all right, go. Like, do, you just go. Like, I don't want to, I never wanted to be the middleman. And that's what I was taught early in my career. Uh, and it was just, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. So it's just something I always went with. Yeah. And if you can cut out the middleman, you make things sp- Speed is so important in these moments. And so by having to get everything approved by a middle manager is it just slows it all down and you're going to drastically and exponentially decrease the number of moments that you can create like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about scaling it, right? So back into marketing yeah. moments. So mm-hmm. uh, you had created this great ambassador program and it was like, well, how can we it's great that we've got 25 people doing this. How can we get a stadium full of people doing this? How can we get every usher, every ticket taker, every security guard uh, acting like this? Mm-hmm. So talk to us a little bit about how you structured that and, and how you were able to scale it. So when we when that, um, let's call it a challenge, was, was put in front of me, we realized that we had to take a step back before we go forward. So... Yes, we got the ambassador program, well-received, metrics are well, all the things, are the boxes are all checked on that program. It was, it was a success, success. So now it's like, how do we take this broader and, and how do we scale this? Well, we took a step back and we wanted to understand what, right? It's almost like the ambassadors and they did. They had their own brand, their own philosophy and their own standards. So we didn't need that. We needed that on the organizational level. Right. So we took a step back and started to have um, these cross functional meetings with all Mm -hmm. of our different departments to learn. Like my favorite one was talking to the owner and, um, you know, asking, like, what do you think is good service? What do you think this should look like? What do you, how should our fans be treated? Uh, And so we had a bunch of those. Then we studied um, all of the fan data that came in. Right. And then after that, my favorite, this has always been, will always be my favorite thing to do is work with the frontline staff. So we had focus groups with them. And I tell you, I, all, all of my ideas for marquee moments were inspired by them. Hmm. Your frontline staff, I'm telling you right now are the smartest people. They have all of the information and they want to share it with you and they want to help you to help them, you know? So I just, everything I got from them I took employee data, right? I took the fan data and I took our organizational um, data. And then that's how I started to shape what our customer service brand was going to look like. Um, So that's how we came to marquee moments. And that whole thing, I just remember uh, my boss at the time, like trying to come up with the name of what this looked like. And even that took a lot of time and collaborating with marketing. <laughs> the and the branding sure. of it, the internal yes, branding. The internal branding, but taking it yeah. a step further is like, how do we involve our marketing person? Um, she's a super smart woman. And how do how does she help us make sure it's on brand? Because she's over here. She has a different challenge. Her challenge is to dust off our brand and bring it, you know, bring it back to life. And how do we make sure we're, we're um, working together to do that. Right. And so I think that was once we came up with the name, uh, once we came up with what we stood for, and then once we came up with what the standards, the general standards were going to be for everybody across the board, that's when we were able to start running with it. Right. And so, uh, again, if anyone's trying to launch a, a service philosophy or a new service culture, the best thing to do is once you feel like this is almost baked, you need to stop and then you need to test it with the people who are going to live it. Mm. So I knew everybody That's in the front office, yeah. everyone in the front office was going to, was going to buy into it. Right. Cause again, I'm socializing it. My boss is socializing it. We're, we're talking about it all the time. That's literally all I'm doing. And then, uh, it, the real feedback came from 
supervisors and managers and who are on the front line, right? Part-time people. And that's where you get the, in my, you know, in my opinion is that's where you get the gold. They are going to pull holes in your story because they are to see it and be like, I can't do that. <laughs> do, do you remember anything specifically that they poked holes in when you first kind of introduced it to the frontline staff? Oh, that's a really, really good question. You know, I can't think anything. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. What okay. I could, what I will say is they asked a lot of questions because they wanted to understand how they were going to roll it out to their team. Hmm. Right. So, so you're talking remember, managers and supervisors then. Yeah. And game, yeah. game day managers and supervisors, right. They wanted to understand how this was going to impact their, how they led. Right? Yeah. How, what is like, what does this mean? Okay, this makes sense to me. Half of it we're already doing, and I think that's something that we did well was we really um, we tuned into what the existing culture was. So we didn't try to start a new one. We just leveled up or mm-hmm. elevated an existing culture. Uh, it's a great way of putting it. Yeah, and so that and so they it it wasn't even our common purpose, which I cannot remember for the life of me right now. But even our common purpose. It had, it was part of it had their old mission statement. Like, yeah. right? so like yeah. there's just a way, and that was, um, it was just a way to make sure like, Hey, like we're not changing everything you do. We're just helping you do things, all the things that you want to do. Yeah. So that's a huge point, right? It's continuity and making sure that it's not like we're saying everybody that's worked here in the past, you've been doing it all wrong. This is the new way. It's more about, Hey, we're going to get even just a little bit better. You're already doing a great job, but let's take it up a notch. Mm -hmm. Um, another important thing that you hit on, right? I think a lot of sports entertainment organizations make this mistake of designing. If they've even designed a customer service program, if you will, designing one, rollout or one training, if you will, and rolling it out to everyone. But to your point of when you ask the questions, those managers and supervisors, they were thinking, well, how do I lead my team with this? And that's where there's all, there's got to be really kind of two levels. And there there's one to the managers and supervisors that is, this is how you motivate and lead your team. And then the frontline staff is, this is how you actually go do it. And if you don't have that separated thing, you're going to get those questions from your team. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's, it is, it is a much bigger process. I think once you get into it, that, uh, you start to realize. Yeah. I, yeah. And I agree in our, I think what helped the frontline supervisors and managers, because we could hear these concerns. It was like, mm-hmm. I, and I, I, one of my favorite things to do is when we're having these sessions and everyone's giving feedback and asking questions. It's not about, it's not about my response. It's not about like debating them. It's about really hearing what they're saying and really trying to hone in on what the real issue is, what the root of the, you know, cause like the problem is. And then once I do that, I'm like, Oh, I get it. Okay. You're just going to, we're going to give them. And I don't tell them in the meeting. It comes out after. Okay. Mm -hmm. As a result of our meeting, here's some things we put together. Some things we already had plans, but they don't, I don't need to know that. Right. So it's, it's their idea. And so it's, uh, you know, okay, we're going to have a communication schedule, every single homestand on what you have to talk about, right. In terms of marquee moments and how you're going to hit it. And we're going to be here to support you. I think, I think that some of the supervisors and managers were like, would you leave me alone? I was there every single day and like, <laughs> how's it going? How can I help? Right. Like, but in like all of the department heads were doing the same thing. Like, how can we support you? How can we help you? How's there, you know, just walking over and just being like, oh, how's it going? Like with marquee moments today, how many things did you reward people? Did people like it? How are fans, you know, just any, anything anecdotal information we could get to continue to enhance it. When you first roll it out too, you have to do that. I I think people like roll, roll it out and be like, we checked the box, we did it. And not realize that like designing it is that's like 25% of it, right? The seven, that real heavy lift comes in. How do you actually ingrain it in people's heads and make it a part of their heart that this is how they do things? That's where the heavy lift comes. It's so true. And I'm so surprised that it, the, the people aren't, I, let me give an example. I have, I'll just say a friend. I don't want to, 
out her here, but she, I watched her and they came in, a company came in and I, I was still with another team and a company came in and she was telling us the program and I was like, oh, this is great. So they have the whole service philosophy, whole, all the standards and the core principles, all the things. And so I said, okay, so who's going to sustain this program once they're gone? Oh, I don't know. Well, like who's going to hold people accountable for doing it? And, and this at the time wasn't her role. Like it wasn't for, it wasn't the job for her to do. She's like, I don't know. She's like, I feel like it should be me. And I was like, make a play for it and I can help you. But some, I was like, I'm telling you right now, it's going to fizzle out. Yeah, It's just going to fizzle out. And um, like a year later, we're having the same conversation. And she's like, do you, can you, can you help me get this going again? Now, now she's in a new role. And she's like, and this thing over here has died and I don't know how to get it going again. And it just, it kind of fizzled out. And that's the one thing, marquee moments. I, for two years, I was like, this is not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> this, is not, yeah. this is not fizzling, fizzling out. It's okay to evolve and update them, but you're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you, you, it, it's even now like where we, we have a lot of conversations where, you know, someone will ask us to jump in on a, a three month, Hey, can you start us up. And it's just like, I'm, I'm tempted to say yes. Cause it's like, Hey, that's, that's quick. That's a quick contract. Right. Um, but I know that at the end of the day, it's going to fizzle out unless they have the support that's set up there. So now it's like, for the most part, we, we tend to do much longer contracts. Um, so anyway, uh, you mentioned a, a word in there. I want to hit on, on accountability. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how you did keep your team accountable across the board, what kind of metrics you guys use to evaluate success for a program like this. Um, give us a little insight there. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we go back to how do we keep them accountable? Uh, we keep thinking, we kept thinking, well, let's give rewards and recognition. We don't have a robust rewards and recognition program across all departments. So that's gotta be the answer. So, of course, we did focus groups to learn more and all the different groups. And, you know, the ones who worked in maintenance were like more money, right? Like, depending on how I asked the question. Okay, got it. Uh, Right? Like, that was their biggest concern. But then it was like, we also want people to just say hi. (laughs) Just say hi to us, Uh, you know, and then respect us. And then a common theme that started to emerge across all the groups are, I don't necessarily need the the, the thing, the prize, like the tangible item. I just need, I, I appreciate a thank you, right? I, I appreciate people who work in the front office recognizing what I do because I'm really proud of what I do so much so that I tell my family and like, you know, my kids and my grandkids. And that was something that was always so important. So it wasn't about the actual reward. Um, it was about the thank you behind it. And so what we did was we rolled out a rewards and recognition program for Marquee Moments. We still did the prizes. And here's why. I knew that people would take, we gave, we gave them like a Marquee Moments token, which people weren't turning in because they thought they, they loved them. Um, they felt like they were collectible. So people started to collect them. I love it. Um, when you received a token, somebody told you thank you and told you why and told you exactly what they witnessed. It was like on the spot. Right. Um, but what I knew was going to happen was people were going to turn in their tokens to get prizes for their families. Right. Hmm. They didn't want another hat or a jacket or they had all the things, but they they talked so much about I bragged to my family about this job. I love this job. I just, you know, if you want to thank, you know, if you want to reward me, just say thank you. And I was like, oh, well, what if you got to share this love with your family? Uh, how, how did you adjust the rewards and recognition to be more about family member and friends than the individuals themselves? Was there anything specific that you did there? So it, it goes back to the communication side of it. So in training, uh, we specifically said, we know that you're not here just to get this token. Right. So we acknowledge that. And then the supervisors and it just keeps going down, right? Everyone's, I mean, to this day, I still say that whenever I'm doing a program with somebody. Yeah. I, like I'll say that to frontline staff because it's just, it happens to be true across every group that I've ever worked with. Uh, and then it's all about the communication schedule and reminding the 
people who are rolling this out, the supervisors and managers on game day to, to remind people, hey, turn in your tokens uh, if you want to get something fun. I saw there's jackets in there or if you want to start your Christmas shopping early to help your family. Right. And so like that. Yeah. And so you kind of just encourage them to go. We get it. It's not about you. So go get something for your family because I, they're going to love it. And that's what um, ended up happening. And I loved when people would run up to me and tell me about it um, in the stands. It, it's the best feeling. I'm, I'm rocking a Purdue shirt as we record this. And like last year, I remember, I don't know, I went back later in the season. Uh, you know, one of the front guys working the gate ran mm-hmm. up to me, David, David, mm-hmm. look how many recognition cards I've collected over the, over the season. And I was standing next to my friend Katie, who, who runs their kind of events and, and operations there. And she's like, what? How does it, oh, this guy still remembers you? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I kept in touch with this guy and, and you talk to him. And every time you're here, you make sure you build a relationship. And, but it, that is the best feeling is when they're saying like to see the guy who's collecting those cards in his pocket, yes. uh-huh. it's a, it's a good feeling. But uh-huh. so, so tell us a little bit more about some of the actual metrics. So from an accountability of staff using reward and recognition, almost that carrot, uh, much more so than the whip, if you will, uh, to actually drive behaviors. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about how you determined with the C-suite team of success of the, the program, if you will. So, um, was there different data like customer satisfaction scores, season ticket renewal rate? How did you guys, Uh how did you guys look to evaluate success? Uh So uh, several different ways, uh, staying on the rewards and recognition, uh, we had a great tracker. So we were able to partner with our IT department and set up a system um, through Salesforce. So once you got a token, you can go in and um, once you, wait, let me remember this correctly. When you gave out a token, you put in what you gave out um, so we could track how many people were receiving rewards. So the onus was on the manager to enter it into the system. Okay. Yes. Right. And again, it goes back to the top. Like we're trying to do this. So we need to, we all need to take a part in, and we, there was, you could do it on your phone right then and there. And like it was, they, the IT team made it so easy for us. Right. So we were able to track how many people were being rewarded by our front office. And so like front office had different home stands and days that they would go out there and do it um, to help. So that was one big major uh, metric. And then can I, can I pause you real quick? I have a question. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that some people listening to this, that they're working on rolling out their own thing and they've rolled out stuff in the past. They're focused on handing those out because they were, intimately involved in creating the program become game three or game 30. How do you continue to get those front office staff from other departments continuing to hand out the rewards and recognition? How do you still make that front of mind? You said eat, make it easy on the it side, but what else? Yeah. And okay. So I think I had the most success with the Cubs for the reason that I became, I shifted it into almost like an internal consultant and mm. I was going to, team meetings for different departments, full-time people to talk about the program and talk about how you hand it out, show them on the screen, how you fill it out. Um, I'm going to be out there with you for your week, right? So just being very strategic and deliberate about who's going out there, when they're going and starting to try to kind of create that behavior. Listen, if you're in the front office, you can give a token at any time to anybody. But in order to make sure this program doesn't fizzle out, I was very strategic about, okay, this is um, IT's week homestand and this is community relations. So I was, again, I, I think people might've been sick of me. Like I was, I was always there, like knocking <laughs> on the door, like how many did you give out today? But I knew, I, you know, what motivated me? It wasn't the fact that I, this was my job. Like I was challenged to do this. What motivated me was when I would walk around the ballpark is when people would stop me and be like, I got a token today. And then they would tell me the story. And so they I became the face of this whole program, like, because I'm just out there every day. So people are going to tell me stories. And I, so that motivated me. I was like, what we're doing is working and it's making people happy. But it's also changing behavior, right? So what gets rewarded gets repeated. So what we're seeing is people who are getting rewarded, all they're doing is talking about it. 
And so then the people who are in that middle level, right? You got your top performers, your low performers, and then right in the middle, people who are in the middle are like, oh, they, they care about us. They care about what we do. Like I could, I could do what she just did. I could smile at fans and get tokens and you know, whatever. And so it, those things started to get repeated and all that just kind of happens organically. Uh, so it was up to me to be the person going around in, in our front office, making sure it was continuing to happen. That's beautiful. Um, well, I interrupted you. Uh, you were talking about kind of other ways that you evaluated success. Mm. Yeah. So that was one, we were big on our NPS score, right? So net promoter score. Yes. For net those promoter of you score. that didn't know what it was. Uh, yes. Uh, so net promoter score we use as a tracker. We, we had a lot of different metrics um, to measure success. So uh, how my boss always liked to say, and we aligned on this was, you know, we have our net promoter score. And then everything else adds color and can kind of show us where we need to focus our efforts because the net promoter score doesn't necessarily do that for you, right? So when you have your scale of, I think it's zero to 10, Mm -hmm. um, and you're really focusing on your, uh, what do you call them? Attract, not detractors, but your promoters. There we go. Net promoter score. <laughs> your I mean, nines you should, and tens. Yes. Your nines and tens. Like when you're focusing on that, but the, the data that came with that was nothing other than that they were likely to recommend somebody to go to a game. So what the fan, we'd have fan satisfaction um, surveys that went out uh, after every game uh, to all ticket holders. We had secret shops. Um, so we can just really get granular and learn. learn. So we'd have, at least three secret shoppers every game. And then um, we'd also have the rewards and recognition data. So when you have this on a dashboard, you see all of the different things. And you're when you're trying to figure out where those gaps are that we need to close, you have all the metrics to support you moving forward. Got it. I love it. Uh, there's like 10 more things that I want to unpack there, but <laughs> we'll maybe have to save it for a part two, because um, I, I do want to get into something else now. Uh, it's been obvious through this conversation, right? I, I think you've got a, a love and a passion for coaching others and, and bringing others uh, along with you, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you're taking that love and, and turning that into what you do every day. Now, uh, you, you just launched a new podcast that's kind of focused around a lot of coaching. Um mm-hmm a game of her own. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about what you've been up to lately. Yeah. So, you know, I, I left, um, about four years ago, started my own business and focused on consulting because it's what I do, right? Like I love all the things I just talked about. I loved doing, but what I found was yes, fan experience is great. And the service culture and helping teams create it is great. But what I found was missing was helping my employees, like, create the career that they've always wanted. Right. So my door was always open. Um, you know, I, I was always around to listen and to help people. It was always to listen, but it was to help them take the next step. So they'd come in, it's almost like they didn't know it, but they'd come in and they leave and they're like, that was like a strategy session. That was great. You know? And so that's the one thing I really truly missed. And so I said, Oh, well I could do both. I was like, let's just test the market and see if there's any coaching, like if I could also do coaching. And I interviewed some women and uh, three out of the four women after the interviews, because I said, I'll interview you and then I'll give you advice after. And all three of the four women said, "Uh, that was great. Do you have any rates that you can send me? Like, I'd like to keep working (laughs) with you. And I said, oh, like, I didn't tell them this, but I was like, of course, I'll send you something. So then I'm scrambling to put together rates and the the rest is history. So that was a year ago. And I took on those first um, three clients. They all said yes to the proposal I sent them. Uh, And so I've been building that out. So what I do in turn, like I can do the consulting side, um, but I also work with women who are in sports or aspiring to be in sports and help them take their career to the next level. I love it. And yeah, I think we, so from that audience background, right, I think we've got a lot of uh, strong females in sport that listen to this podcast. Um, And I know you just launched your own game of her own. Uh 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 Talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, You know, as I, so when I'm working with my coaching clients, I found myself talking about things like 
self-doubt, right? How to get over fear of rejection, being uncomfortable, being uncomfortable. I mean, being comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? And so how to negotiate all these different topics. And the one thing that always made them feel better before we dove into like strategizing for specifically for them was you're not, you're not alone. Everybody, no matter what level has gone through this, it just, it, it happens. So, um, I said, you know, I've always wanted to start this podcast and help tell the stories or share the stories of all these incredible women who are leaders in the sports industry, right? I think it's hard enough to get into the sports industry, period, man or woman. Then when you get in, you're a woman or a woman of color, it's even harder, right? So hearing these stories are only going to inspire others to keep on going. Because we need you. We need you all. If you hear me, we need you all to keep doing your things. You're doing amazing things. And I see you. So that was my, I guess, why my, what inspired me to start this podcast was just so we can share other people's stories. And so we get into the journey of how women got to where they are now. And then of course, when you're talking about your journey, you're going to have all these lessons that you've learned al- along the way. And uh, so far, everyone has been candid and has been sharing some great, some great advice. Well, I think what you're doing in this space is incredibly important because, I mean, just as we think about it from a customer experience and an employee experience standpoint, having that senior leader to look up to and role model after is extremely important. And so I think there's so often in sports and entertainment, you and I talked about this before multiple times about the lack of diversity at the senior leader level, uh, whether it be with women, whether it be minorities, whatever, whatever the case, uh-huh. it's a lot of white males in senior leadership positions, uh, in sports and entertainment. And we joked about it even from a podcasting perspective, right? Like uh-huh. you're going through and, and so we need more positive role models, uh, that, young, younger women can look up to. And I mean, I guess women of all ages really, uh, in sports and entertainment industry, uh, because you're right there. I I know some incredible women in the sports and entertainment industry that are doing some incredible things. Um, and, and so I think what you're doing is, uh, immensely, immensely helpful to the industry. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. And I, I do agree. Like it's, it's whatever phase of your career, you're in, right? These are designed to help anybody. And I, I think back to when I first started, I would gravitate towards women in, in sports. Like, so first it was within my little bubble of the Red Sox. And then I started to branch out and anybody I can meet and learn from, because you, you know, you're like me. So how are you getting to where you are today? You know? And I, I look back at my old boss and she's an SVP now at the Red Sox. And I'm like, yes, like she made it. But I remember when she was a director and I was a part-time ambassador making $7 and 25 cents an hour. (laughs) But like, even now in my career, I want to hear Sarah's story again, because I know so much has happened since I've left the Red Sox. And I know that she can teach us all so much. So while I'm a coach and I can teach and coach and help you get to the next level, I think these interviews also can help women. Um, just learn and be inspired. Yeah. That that's the accessible, easy way, right. That you can just jump on for free. And I think the, the, when I look at your background in service and how, you know, even through this conversation, how structured you tend to be and how you look at that as a really structured thing. I think that's similarly how you help your clients right now from a coaching perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. so if anybody's interested in that, we'll put your contact info, uh, in the show notes. Uh, but just in case, uh, how can people get a hold of you or reach you uh, if they want to reach out and, and learn more? The easiest way is on Instagram. So my, I'm Jahan Blake. Uh, so Instagram, you can DM me at any time. I still feel funny saying that, but DM me at any time. It's, <laughs> it's interesting. I, I, a lot of conversations are happening just in messenger and it's just super easy and fast. And, um, I was talking to someone today and I sent her something that I know will help her in her career. I was like, found this, do this. And she's like, signed up. That all took like 30, less than 30 seconds. Um, so that's always good. So, uh, Instagram, Instagram handle is Jahan Blake. And then, uh, my email is jblake at the jblakegroup.com. Uh, and also on LinkedIn, don't spend a ton of time there, but, um, if that's where you play, I'm there. 
you and I are reverse in that, in that way. I'm, I'm definitely more active on LinkedIn and you always give me crap that I don't ever post anything on Instagram. I, know so. you don't. <laughs> I need, I need to step up my game and learn from you. It so. all depends on where your, your clients are. So there's no wrong answer there. Fair enough. Well, Jahan, thank you so much for being on Uh pleasure catching up with you as always. And uh, we look forward to talking to you soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Hey guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at engagement in our normal day in the office. We're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.